I was like the most nervous I think I've ever been in my life. Oh. Because, okay, like you compare this to, let's say, you know, a football game or you compare this to like the NFL Combine where, you know, your performance really affects whether or not you make it into the NFL. Mm-hmm. From Quantum Magazine, this is The Joy of X. I'm Steve Strogatz. In this episode, John Urschel. My performance on this exam really affected whether or not, like, I would continue on the path that was, like, my life dream. Hmm. My life's dream. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, from the, from the little kid yeah, my life's in the bookstore. Dream. Yeah, my life's dream was not to be a professional football player. That's so interesting. Meet my friend John Urschel. He's had at least two lives so far. First, as a professional football player for the Baltimore Ravens, where he was an offensive lineman. He played center and guard. But it was only for about three years before he decided to follow his real passion, which was to become a a mathematician. And again, he's at the highest echelon of of that sport or that game, except um, in this case, he's training at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he's a graduate student in the math program. Part of the fun for me of getting to know him is seeing a scientist at the beginning of the life cycle rather than at the end. This is someone who's just launching what I'm sure is gonna be a brilliant career. I've always found application to be a sort of like a nice cherry, but Mm. never, never, it's never (laughs) motivated. It's not the whole Sunday for you. No, it's it's (laughs) like application will never motivate me to do a problem. It's interesting because a lot of your stuff, uh, well, fields like machine learning, linear algebra, you know, graph theory, they have all kinds of applications, but you seem to like to dig out the math that makes the machine work. Yes. Yes. Or how would you put it? What, what yes, is yes. That? I think that's, that's absolutely right. I like to somehow, you know, I've I found these areas to be quite interesting, and I like understanding how things work. Mm-hmm. I like understanding why. I'm a why person. <laughs> you know? I don't think we should primarily conceive of John as a football player. I really think of him as a puzzle solver. And um, he seems to have been fascinated by puzzles since childhood. I like the picture of you as... Uh, that I have in my head, but you mm-hmm. need to correct me if I'm okay. not getting it right. As a little boy looking at um, puzzle books that his mother gave him. Yeah. So what does that picture really look like with more color in it? Yes, with more color, you can imagine my mom would take me to the local Barnes and Nobles. Yeah. And, you know, I would run around all excited. <laughs> and I would, like, go and I would look at all the different puzzles and different puzzle books. Uh-huh. And she would tell me, you know, you can choose one, ah. you know, and she would show me different. I mean, okay, when we started, at first, she would just buy me a couple. Yeah. And, but then, you know, once I, once I liked them, <laughs> then she would let me go to the book, the book shop and pick them out. What was the appeal of, of puzzles for you? It was fun. <laughs> okay. I, yeah. I, I have no, I, it's not something complex. It's not something complicated. It's that it was challenging. Mm-hmm. And the satisfaction of solving a puzzle and also sort of the enjoyment of sort of wrestling with it. How did this compare to your experience in school? Because in principle, school has puzzles and things to learn and challenges. Yes. In reality, school was not the most enjoyable thing for me, mm-hmm. in part because, one, I was, I was slightly antisocial. 
Hmm. I was. I mean, uh, there's this uh, there's this story my mom loves to tell over and over again. <laughs> I'm in first grade, and the teacher, my first grade teacher, and the principal call my mother in, and they call her in to let her know that they think I am mentally challenged, hmm. that I have you know a mental disability, mm-hmm. and that. I need to be held back to take the first grade over again and be put in a first grade class with mentally challenged, other mentally challenged children. Mm -hmm. And my mother is, you know, as any parent would be, is extremely, extremely upset by this. And not only is she extremely upset, thankfully, she's extremely defiant Hmm. because she is certain that I do not have a mental disability Mm -hmm. and that I'm actually quite bright. And also she sort of, herself perceived this as somewhat racial mm-hmm. in a you know in a way and so she had them test me to test to see whether or not I you know in fact had these issues and I scored extremely well on you know all fronts and in particular in mathematics I was completely off the charts <laughs> to the extent that uh, they recommended to my mother they said we are extremely sorry <laughs> we recommend he takes third grade next he doesn't need second grade. oh wow okay so they That's... knew that you weren't in the right grade but they just had it backwards yeah and well <laughs> and they also gave good reasons for why they thought i was you know mentally challenged because they said well during playtime he doesn't play with anyone else yeah he's just by himself uh uh-huh. He doesn't pay attention in class. When we ask him questions, he doesn't answer. Oh. And, uh, hmm. and yeah, he's never, he's never looking where he's supposed to be. And uh, he doesn't talk. And, uh, you know, when we ask him questions, he seems to never know what's going on or never know the answer or never want to answer. Mm-hmm. But so, so you say your mother thought there was this racial dimension to it. Yes. Yeah, so this was in uh, like a suburb of Buffalo and I think – there were no black kids uh-huh. in school except for me. Yeah. And not only – so she thought that, okay, you know, well, Johnny's yeah. little – he's, you know, got a single parent and, you know, they sort of – and he's not paying attention. Mm-hmm. Rather than giving me the benefit of the doubt and questioning, is he not paying attention because he's bored or because he doesn't understand, mm-hmm. she thought that they sort of immediately went to – of the end that they thought seemed likely given what I looked like and what my home situation was. Yeah. But you say you don't see the story that way. I sort of see it as as a story that really says more about what I was like as a little kid <laughs> than like what the school system was like because, you know, clearly I was very, you know, I you know, I I, I was somewhat of a problem child. Yeah, it sounds like I was you're a problem child. Like you can empathize with the school people. Yes, of course, I was clearly a problem child that was, you know, I was not the typical child and uh, yeah. not, in a, not in a good way. I mean, it seems like we should start talking about you have this interesting chapter of your life that goes on for quite a while with, with sports and football especially. Yeah, yeah. No, I do. What, uh, what, what do you what want to know? We, what should we know? So you yeah. started in getting interested in high school. I suppose that's maybe your growth spurt at around uh, – you start getting very big, I actually started or? getting interested in middle school. In middle school. And so it's interesting because the reason why I got into sports was because of conformity. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I had been bullied. Mm-hmm. And I changed school systems. And I decided, you know what? 
I am not getting bullied anymore. Hmm. I am going to fit in. And how am I going to fit in? Conformity. This is amazing. This is such a formative thing in your life, this whole bullying. Yeah. No. Period. Yeah. I decided like this is not happening anymore. Yeah. This is not good. I don't like it. It's been going on for far too long. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to look and see what are the popular kids doing. Yeah. And whatever they're doing, I'm going to do that exact thing. Huh. So I got there. And what do all the popular kids do? Well, they play lacrosse and they like to play street hockey. Yeah. These are my two new favorite sports. Okay, there you go. <laughs> I'm now a lacrosse player, and I am quite a good street hockey goalie. So you, you take on these sports that are the, the popular kids' sports. Yes. And, and guess and what? I, what? I become like part of the popular kid friend group. Yeah. Yeah. Everything's fine now. So I get into sports. I'm on the lacrosse team. I even do like travel box lacrosse, which is lacrosse played in a uh, hockey rink. Oh, okay. Yes. And uh, yeah, so now all of a sudden I play sports. Mm-hmm. And right around this time that I'm playing sports, my father simultaneously moves back near me. Mm. So for a decent, you know, for some chunk of my life, he was living in Boston mm-hmm. because he was, the, uh, he was the chief of surgery at uh, Beth Israel Deaconess, mm-hmm. Harvard's hospital. And uh, he moves back, and when he moves back, he decides that I'm overweight hmm. and I'm out of shape, and that he needs to fix this. Hmm. Yeah. And so he decides, I'm going to fix this. Mm-hmm. And so what he does is he all of a sudden becomes extremely involved in my life, and he picks me up from school every single day after school, Yeah. and he takes me to the gym, and we're lifting weights. And we're running up, running up and down stairs, and we're doing laps on the, you know, on the uh, track. Was this one at like an especially happy time for you? You're getting to hang out. Yeah, with your dad it was so an much? extremely happy time. I like really, I yeah. really loved it. Uh-huh. Like, these were like some of my favorite memories. I bet. Yeah. Like, yeah, and uh, I, I got. And he it. himself had been a uh, an athlete. Yeah, he was a uh, college football player. He had a chance to play professionally, but he decided to uh, sort of like uh, finish medical school instead. There's a little gap here in going from your high school days playing lacrosse and stuff to you in college because that's a big decision, right? Where are you going to go to college? At some point, football has to become part of our discussion Yes, so I was playing football in high school. The coaches immediately after the first day of practice, they say, oh, this one, we need to to do something with him. Yeah. You know, they could tell, you know, I had horrible technique. (laughs) I, you know, didn't know, you know, really anything about how to play football, but I was really good at hitting people. Okay. There so you. after the first day of practice, he's no longer on the freshman team. He's on the junior varsity team. After the break, John goes to the Ph.D. playoffs. If you like the Joy of X podcast and getting to know brilliant scientists and mathematicians, you might also like Quanta Magazine's science podcast. In every episode, Quanta's award-winning reporters illuminate the stories behind new discoveries in mathematics, physics, computer science, and the life sciences. Check it out on Apple Podcasts or on your preferred podcasting app or at quantamagazine.org. The Quanta Magazine Science Podcast, illuminating science for your ears.
flesh this out a little. How can you be a pro football player and in training to be a pro mathematician? Don't do it. This is my advice for anyone. <laughs> anyone in the NFL thinking Do not of... do it. Do not do it. I have to say that, first of all, I'm so I'm so grateful to be at MIT and you know, this is an amazing place for me. But don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. And this this like as much as I hate to admit it, this really came this really played a part in my decision to retire when I did, I think. Yeah. Because, you know, I think a part of me really did not want to do that. Bob, what are you talking about? Okay. So what I'm talking about is being in the fall, being sort of like oh. being a player in the NFL, yeah. a full-time job, a very serious full-time job. Mm-hmm. And you get downtime, though, as any person does. Okay, it's not some crazy amount of hours. But then I'm doing coursework. Like for people who don't know much about football, every you, you play on Sunday, you yeah, got to get I'll better. I'll tell by, you yeah, the tell exact us. schedule. Yeah, okay. just to give us a, a Perfect. picture. So I'll tell you my exact schedule. Okay, yeah. So so the Ravens are slightly different than most teams in the league based off when they give us our off day. Mm-hmm. Most teams have their off day on Tuesday. We did ours on Monday. Mm-hmm. So we play on Sunday. Let's say we have a 1 o'clock game. I get done around 5 or so. I'm out by 5. I go home. You're all now sore. Sore, beat up. Yeah. From 5 p.m. until 11 a.m. on Tuesday. So 5 p.m. Sunday, 11 a.m. on Tuesday. I am not a football player. I am a full-time Ph.D. student at MIT, and I am trying to do all my assignments as quickly as possible. I thought you were going to say either that you were asleep or you're in a like in some kind of hot tub or no, something. No, I, to... I, I need to get all my work done. Got to get all your work done. Yeah, so... At the time, what I was doing— That's your only window. This is my only window. And so I just absolutely—and then, okay, so then Tuesday is like a half day of work. Wednesday is a full day of football work, very long day. Thursday is a long day. Friday is more of like a three-quarters day. And then Saturday is your travel day, and you start to— Yeah, which could mean going across the whole country or whatever. And so, you know, that whole period, I'm fully football because, well— yeah. It's a serious job and I need to really pay attention. I need to watch film. I need to do things. Otherwise, I'm not going to have a job. Mm-hmm. And I want to let you know that this absolutely was too much. And then, you know, I finished the, I finished the season. We don't make the playoffs, which, okay, of course I'm sad about, but the one plus of the not making the playoffs <laughs> is I now have a month to study for my quals. Right. Maybe you should tell us what that means. What, what are yeah, quals? So uh, qualifying exams, it's a set of exams you take that test your proficiency in certain areas of math, and you need to pass these things in order for you to sort of move along to say that, okay, this person knows enough math that we feel comfortable sort of pushing him along the PhD process. Mm-hmm. Now, so let me put an asterisk on it. Yes. From the professor's point of view. And you probably know this. Yes, tell me from the professor's Okay, so from the professor's point of view, this is a good chance for us to get rid of students who don't belong. Yes, yes. Right. I wasn't going to say this. Well, yes. this is a hurdle. Yes, right? it is a this serious is a, hurdle. This is a very serious hurdle. And sometimes students are admitted who are risky in some way Either their their preparation is a little thin, but they have some kind of potential, mm-hmm. or 
you know, you can think of various yeah. reasons. You so, take a uh, chance on let someone. Let me say that uh, I'm currently pointing at myself okay, right yes. now. When you say like, you know. <laughs> I was being a little abstract yes, in my but, description. But no, of it. no, it's true. So yeah. this, was a, this was a very serious moment for me to say I belong here. Mm-hmm. First of all, I did my undergrad at Penn State. This is hardly an institution that is, you know. Famous for pumping out brilliant yeah. undergrad mathematicians. That's right. Well, I mean, it does have a strong math department. Okay, as it, it has turns a, out. It has a strong math department, but MIT doesn't consider it a peer institution. Exactly, MIT does not consider it a peer institution. Nor does Penn State. Yeah, I mean, nor does Penn State. Let's be real. <laughs> and yeah. I love Penn State, but uh, okay, I I can't think of the last mathematician, you know, undergrad, you know, major math major at Penn State who has, you know, done a PhD at, you know, let's say a top-tier institution. You know what I mean? It's just... It's not the standard route. It's not the standard route. First of all, it's not the standard route. Second of all, I'm this professional football player (laughs) who's been out of school. Yeah. You know, so it's not like I'm in school and then applying. I'm out of school. Mm -hmm. No, you're you're definitely an unconventional student. Yeah, I'm completely unconventional. They accept me halfway like through the year. So I started January. Mm, that's also very Very unusual. unconventional. Yeah. And so all of this put together, I'm an unconventional, you know, student there. So I felt like, you know, I I need to do well here. Otherwise, this could spell serious trouble. Mm-hmm. I was very aware of this. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm no fool. And so I locked myself into like my office with a chalkboard and with all these notes to try to prepare for these three courses that my qualifying exam is on. I am doing this like 14 hours a day. Mm. I am killing myself because I am behind and I'm just like, I have to do this. Yeah. And then I also have to prepare for these other two courses. Sure. So are the qualifying exams done as an oral exam or a yes. written exam? So I, I wish they were written. They were they were oral. Yeah. yeah oral exams. So antisocial John Urschel is standing in front of his teachers. In a very, very stressful By situation. himself. By myself. With what? Picture, what do we picture? Three, three dudes? Th- three dudes. And by the end, the consensus they have is that, yes, I've passed. Mm-hmm. I know the material. But uh, they did say that I did seem really nervous early on. <laughs> he said, like, like, you know the material, but, like, clearly you're, you're very nervous early mm-hmm. on, is what okay. they said. Which is fair because I was incredibly nervous. I was, like, the most nervous I think I've ever been in my life. Once I got introduced to higher-level mathematics, I knew <laughs> that my dream in life was to be a math professor. And not just be a math professor, but be one who, like, actually makes, you know, at least one nice discovery, <laughs> at least one, yeah, and has a chance to, you know, continually learn, work on hard problems, even if I fail and I, you know, I fail again and again and again, that's fine. Just being able to work on them, interacting with sort of other people, young students. Really, I just want to, you know, think about things, <laughs> think about tough things, even if I don't, you know, uh-huh. make any progress. I mean, this goes back to me as a kid. The, the enjoyment is sort of the struggle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's very, very uh, consistent from yeah. running through your life, it seems. Yeah, so this is like my, this is my, I mean, my dream is to be a, be a professor. This seems to be one of these happy dreams that that's going to turn out that way so I far. So. so Yeah, good. I hope so. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's yeah. <clears throat> maybe you should tell us a little about, um, you know, so you pass the, the qualifying exam. All right, you're nervous, but they say you pass. And then you got to work, and, and you've been doing now for some number of years. I finished 
three and a half years now. Mm -hmm. And so I'm starting the end of my fourth year this fall. And so this is it. I mean, normally when I do talk to my scientists in this show, yeah. there are people who are sometimes in their 60s. So you're one of our first, I think you are, our first guest who's at an early stage in the professional developmental life cycle, the making of a scientist or a mathematician. What word would you use to describe what you're trying to become? Math Ma yeah, simply mathematician. mathematician. Yeah, mathematician. That's the word yeah, for you. Of course. No adjectives on it? No, mathematician. Yeah. Okay. So for you, pure or applied, which some people make a big deal about. Uh, I don't, uh, I don't not really into distinguish that. these things so much. Yeah. Okay. So tell us a little then about um, what kinds of questions you like and what you like about them. Yes. So the questions that I often like answering are questions of the form, either, either there's a well-known area or well-known technique that is not well understood. And I like understanding theoretical guarantees of perhaps a certain technique or theoretical sort of properties of a certain problem. But when you speak of a theoretical guarantee, tell us what that would mean. Suppose there's a machine learning problem. Mm -hmm. What I mean by a machine learning problem is you have some framework where you say you get some samples and now you're asked to, let's say, learn something back, mm -hmm. maybe a distribution. And you want to ask questions of the form, how well can you learn back your distribution given your samples? Mm -hmm. And okay, often this is asked from a heuristic point of view and you look at techniques to do this, whether it be sort of gradient descent type techniques or some variant of that, but you try to solve these things in practice. Whereas in this framework, I'm typically interested in understanding when this is an easy problem to solve, when it's a hard problem to solve, and why. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in looking at techniques that maybe people already use and understanding under what circumstances is this guaranteed to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's, a, it's an interesting niche. It's almost like I'm trying to think of what an analogy would be for this. Um, it's as if there are tools that people have. Like you could literally picture a drill yes. you know, or a hammer or a saw. Yeah, and I want to know what does this hammer work on? Yeah. How well can we be guaranteed that it works? People are already hammering away right. with it. So they know it's an effective hammer. Yes, but I want to know can we quantify how effective it is? Yeah, where would it break down? Yes, exactly. And yeah. so this is one of my big interests. And then other interests I have are sort of answering theoretical questions about, uh, about things that, that we use, perhaps theoretical questions where it's not obvious how useful they are. Like, for instance, I care about theoretical questions regarding your ability to, say, solve an eigenvalue problem mm. or solve a linear system. Mm -hmm. And theoretical from the point of, you know, uh, asymptotic running time. Mm -hmm. Or I'm concerned about your ability to, say, approximate a certain signal you have. I actually think about these things in a very abstract setting in the sense that, yes, I understand where these things come from, mm -hmm. but it's enough for me to know where these things come from. People care about them. And for me, it is a purely mathematical problem, which, in fact, is even simpler in my mind 
when I just think about it as a mathematical So am problem. I gunking it up by being too concrete with this audio No, example? you're not gunking it up because this is – I think that this is something that helps a lot of people to understand things. Yeah. But to me, yeah. here's the way I think about it. And so here's the abstract version of the problem. Suppose – okay, for instance, we have a, uh, a cube, a unit cube. In D dimensions. Okay. okay. <laughs> we can't do it in three dimensions for our for anyone who wants sure, to picture we, it. We can say an ordinary three dimensional. Three cube. dimensions. D equals three. Okay. But there's but still it's, a D. you're getting a flavor of what John yes. likes to do. He wants to do it in any number of dimensions. Yes. And now what we're going to do is we're going to break up this unit cube into n pieces. Uh huh. Cool. Okay. And in fact. Rather than break it up into n pieces, I'll do something even more intuitive for our listeners. Yeah, we're going to just pick n points in the cube. Okay, okay, we pick n points. Got Rather it. than breaking up into n pieces, I think this is more intuitive. Okay, cool. We pick n points in the cube, and we're going to try to pick these n points so that we minimize the following thing. Mm-hmm. We want to minimize the average squared distance. Yeah, from any point we randomly from any other point. Randomly chosen in the cube, yeah, and the closest point of the n I points that we I hear you. just listed. Right. So there, can I? I always like to be concrete. Yes. Uh, tell me if this is close. Yes. If you thought of this cube as a big block of three-dimensional space, which is like here I am on the surface of the Earth, but I also have access to a helicopter, so I can go up into the third dimension. Yes. And. Maybe imagine some futuristic thing where people are living all over the place in this three-dimensional cube. Yeah, and you can imagine something like hospitals. That's exactly what yeah, I was going to yeah, say. This is a good it's example. Like, where should you put the hospitals? Yeah, where so do you put the, the shortest, hospitals? So everyone's close to a hospital no matter where right. they live. And the way you measure closeness is based off square distance. Yeah. Yeah, which, is, which turns out to be a good way to measure these things. Uh-huh. Yeah. So good. I'm glad yes, I was on the exactly right track. Right. Because that's an example I use a lot. Okay, cool. hospitals. Yeah. Well, because it's a real thing, yeah, right? People in the field of operations research try to think about where should you put the ambulances, where should you put the hospitals, given where the people live. Yeah, I mean, this is a. You can think of this problem as a specific, a specific type of example of like an optimal transport. It's beautiful. Example. So this is the mathematical natural generalization of this very concrete hospital problem. Yes. Cool. Yes. Cool. So this is, you know, and this is a, such a typical math move that you take a, a thing that comes from the real world. Yes. And now you make it more beautiful and more abstract and maybe more general. It will apply to many more things than the hospital problem. Yes. Yes. When we come back, how to get a traveling salesman to all 48 state capitals in the contiguous U.S. in the most efficient, shortest possible distance. Also, what does a classic movie have to do with fixing math education today? The fun of learning about science and math doesn't have to stop with this podcast. The MIT Press has published two books from Quantum Magazine. In Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire, explore our quantum reality and the mysteries of time, black holes, deep learning, and the origin of life. In The Prime Number Conspiracy, meet the world's greatest mathematical minds and immerse yourself in their insights. You can find Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire and The Prime Number Conspiracy wherever you buy books, including Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or your local bookstore. You can also listen to them as audiobooks on Audible. From Quantum Magazine, we illuminate science because you want to know more.
John and I talked about an old problem that's a classic chestnut in math. It goes by the name of the traveling salesman problem. In a nutshell, it's it's the question of if you wanted to get a salesman to all 48 state capitals in the continental U.S. in the shortest possible distance, how would you do it? You know, probably doesn't sound like a very pressing problem. There aren't too many traveling salesmen left anymore. But it embodies much bigger principles. It has big implications for everything from uh, military operations, air traffic control, medicine, essentially anything where you've got countless possibilities and you're looking for the best or the cheapest or the fastest way to do something. Especially, you know, in some problems that are so big like this, there's just no hope of listing every possible option. So you need a more efficient way to solve the problem. John worked on a subspecies of this kind of problem, goes by the name of the asymmetric traveling salesman problem. Asymmetric is just imagine the amount of time it takes from you to get from point A to point B is different than the amount of time it would take you to get from point B to point A. Okay, yes. got it. So like if we thought of all the capitals of all the states in the yes. United States, mm-hmm. there'd be 50 cities. Yes. And uh, actually, it's a little confusing with Hawaii being... Yeah, not, let's get okay, rid of let's Hawaii Let's do the continental, yeah, US, continental okay. U.S. So those 48 states. So, so if you had to go from one capital to the next and you want to minimize the you want to visit distance you travel. all 48 capitals? Yeah, nobody visits twice. You don't go to you, any place twice. You oh, you can. It's usually not a good idea to go backwards. Sometimes it is. Can it be? Well, it's important that you're allowed to. Okay. Well, so you're allowed to visit any city as much as you want. Yeah, but, but you want to visit all. Total, visit them all in yeah. the shortest amount of And distance. we could say total distance. But the asymmetric problem you say is like the distance from Albany to uh, Harrisburg is different than the distance from Harrisburg to Albany. It could be because there's so much construction yeah, on the, exactly. the roads. Yeah, exactly. So this would be the asymmetric setting. And now you want to try to you know, visit these 48 capitals in as little distance as possible. And now, so first of all, this is known to be something called NP-hard, which means, well, I'm not even going to attempt to say what it means. What it means is that what the, the amount of time that we think it would take to solve this problem exactly is very large compared to the number of places we have to visit. So what people work on is they try to come up with ways to quickly find a route that may not be the best route, but isn't guaranteed to be within some factor of the best route. Oh, yes, I see. I spent like well over a year looking at this and I made no progress. Yeah, Yeah. And, And that happens and that's okay, except it's not okay when you're a PhD student. <laughs> well, that's true. Learning yeah. how to back out sometimes, yeah. or I want to say quit, really. Yeah, no. I mean, so we, strategic quitting is a valuable skill. Yeah, so we completely backed out. Mm-hmm. And you know, I said, okay, I've really spent a chunk of time trying to work towards something that I'm clearly not making progress on. I need to be realistic. I need to start working on something where I feel like I can make some steps towards something. I can have some publications. I need to catch up. I need to start being very active because this is important and this mm-hmm. is sort of has a big effect on my life. And so this is this is what I've been doing mm. because it's not good, you know, <laughs> as a PhD student to have, you know, you know, to be working on something for a year, year and a half Absolutely. and have nothing to show no, for. No, you got to put points on the board. Yeah. So I, you know, for a year and a half, I put no points on the board. And so the past like recent, you know, recent time, I've really been working on so I put out, you know, I put out a paper like a few months ago involving sort of some some questions about sort of your ability to draw graphs 
in the plane mm-hmm. in sort of a nice sense. And, you know, I'm, I'm working on this quantization stuff. And so I'm making progress. Sounds and good. And I feel really good about Sounds it. Sounds really good. Yeah, yeah. I see you got a big smile there. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really, <laughs> I'm really happy about the okay, stuff I'm okay. doing and I, uh, I enjoy it a lot. So I really enjoy it. It's like, it's, it's really cool stuff. Fantastic. And it's a flavor that I really didn't, I didn't really, uh, I didn't study it all before. Yeah. Because, okay, the way I came to this, this is going to sound crazy, but okay, and this is something I should have said, this whole quantization problem, listeners probably, you know, unless you work in information theory, you wouldn't have heard of this. But this quantization problem, when you replace a continuous signal Mm -hmm. with, let's say, a discrete set of points, this is something called the k-means problem. Oh yeah, that's which, a famous thing. Which is a famous thing in machine learning and yeah. you know, if you're a data science person, everyone knows this. My sister-in-law's boyfriend, you know, he works in like politics. He knows this algorithm. Mm-hmm. And so, which was Because of gerrymandering or something? Uh, because it's a common technique in just like data science. Yeah. Anytime you have some data, and you just want to break it into parts. Turns out the k-means algorithm is the single most popular technique. Mm, I to hear about people mentioning it all the time now. Yeah. So, uh, so yes, this is k-means. So you have a natural audience. It sounds like. I mean, yeah. you're a step or two away from k-means. Yes, and of thing. course, you can imagine based off my previous work that I came to this through k-means, although it has taken a very abstract flavor. Another part of John's work is about changing the way that students learn math. He thinks there's a lot missing in the way that we're doing math education. It's important, I think, to understand the context of what you're learning mm-hmm. in terms of just know a tiny bit about when was it discovered? Yeah. Why was it discovered? Right. Why what not? was its use? Because I feel like, you know, as kids, or at least when I was a kid, I felt like this math that I was learning, you know, although like I enjoyed it, you know, it just came out of this like black box. Sure. Whereas, you know, when you're learning addition or multiplication or you're learning all these things, to think that people came up with these things so long ago so that they could solve like problems where they have, you know, six people working and they have 11 loaves of bread, how much does each person get? Mm-hmm. Or you have two groups of people and 50 loaves of bread, but one group of people working is more than the other group. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are famous examples that we've found like, uh, I think it's like hieroglyphs. Absolutely. Of, Ancient of, cultures of were these, thinking about stuff Yeah, like this. I mean, this is what people were using numbers for. Yeah, and collecting taxes and surveying yeah, exactly. and measuring land. I mean, that's in our in the word geometry itself is land measurement. Yeah, you know, exactly. This was a problem of figuring out the area so that the king would know how much grain to collect in tax. Yeah, I mean, and it's as strange as it sounds, like uh, not a single thing, in my opinion, that a kid learns in mathematics in a high school curriculum is sort of – Anything that isn't born out of a very practical use that was needed mm. in the history of our world. Mm-hmm. And I think kids don't understand that. But I will say that in physics class or in other classes, you do get a flavor of the people who discover certain things. And you true. do get a flavor of, you know, why. Mm-hmm. You do get a flavor of this. Some, or at least true. I got Some a flavor Some fields of are this. better with that. Yeah, the physicists yeah. tend to be better about that than, yeah. than in math. When you go to classrooms nowadays, well, what kinds of things do you try to do with the students? I mean, okay, you know me. Uh, I love uh, puzzles. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, you know, I get in a classroom and I love, I love doing puzzles. And also my audience of choice is always an AP calculus course. Yeah. I mean, this is just it, – it feels like this is – it feels like I can do the most – in this sort of high school classroom, mm-hmm. and I have a 
sort of competitive advantage over the next person who might they might want to bring in to talk about math in that, okay, I feel like there's lots of people who can talk about like math or talk about the importance of science at the level of like a sixth grader or a seventh grader, but not so many people can talk to, let's say, a room of people who just took Calc BC who are going to college, who think they might want to study certain scientific disciplines that have a knowledge of mathematics where I can give them good advice. Right. And so I, I'm a resource, I answer questions, but also I give them a little bit of a lecture. It can be, you know, going through puzzle, like sort of interesting problems. Like sometimes, you know, I'll, sh I'll show them like the Riemann rearrangement theorem. That's a great one. So maybe we should try to give the heart of what that's about. I, Absolutely. I, mean, I could try, but you could try. Okay, I can try. So I want you to imagine the following sum. I'm just going to add up these numbers. I'm going to add up one, subtract one half, add a third, subtract a fourth, add a fifth, subtract a sixth, add a seventh, subtract an eighth, add a ninth, and so on and so forth. And you can imagine where I'm going with this. So this is so this is all the fractions, one over something. One over something. One over one, one over two, one over three, but with alternating plus and minus yeah. signs. It's a them. plus if the denominator is odd. It's a minus if the denominator is even. Okay. And I want you to add these things in the order that I just added them. Yeah. Okay. And if you add all these things together, you get a fixed number. Oh, I should know this. I think it's like log two. Yeah, exactly. Right? Natural logarithm of two. Yeah. So it'll be about 0.69. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I, I think so. I mean, yeah. I think no, that's if right. I remember right. No, I that's think right. So. That's right. Good okay. memory. All right. Thank you. Yeah, good. <laughs> and now what I'm going to do is I'm just going to change the order that I'm going to add the numbers. Yeah. So instead, I'm just going to, let's say, add one, subtract a half, subtract a fourth, add a third, subtract a sixth, subtract an eighth. Okay. So some tricky thing where you're still using the same numbers. Same numbers. But in some new Add a order. fifth, subtract a tenth. You're not putting plus signs in front of things well, that used to have negatives. You didn't no, do any of that. I didn't do anything numbers. of that. The exact same numbers. I mean, Take one minus a half minus a fourth. Mm -hmm. What's one minus a half? It's a half. So now I have a half minus a fourth. Right. I take a third minus a sixth minus an eighth. Yeah. What's a third minus a sixth? Uh, another sixth. A sixth. So I have a sixth minus an eighth. Yes. And then I go on and, and on oh, and on. Oh, boy. I see and what's happening. And now I have a half minus a fourth plus a sixth minus an eighth plus a tenth minus a twelfth plus a fourteenth <laughs> minus a sixteenth. But look, I have a common denominator of two. Oh, boy. So I had better pull out a half. But when I pull out a half, what do I get? I get one minus a half plus a third minus a fourth plus a fifth <laughs> minus a sixth plus a seventh minus an eighth. And somehow I got half of what I started with. I started with the log of two. Yeah, now you got a half and log. And now I have two. a half log of two. So, okay, I realize that might be hard to have listened to. But what John just did was he took a big, an infinite set of numbers that added up in what in the jargon of calculus would be a convergent series. Yes. And it converged to a certain number, 0. 0.69. Yes. He then took the same numbers mm -hmm. and just added them at a different order. Yes. And now he got an answer that's half as big. Yes. It's only a half of 0. 0.69. Mm -hmm. And the beautiful result of the Riemann rearrangement theorem says that what really, that really determines the sum is sort of the ratio of these things that are being taken out. And in fact, you can produce any number you want. Suppose there's always a ratio of taking things out from the positive bin and the negative bin, such that the sum of this infinite series will be any number you want. You could, Steve could tell me a number right now. Sure, I want it to add up to 42. 42. And there is a way for me to reorder the sum that I just told you such that it equals 42. It's unbelievable. It's, it's a beautiful it's result. It's the most amazing, I mean, 
it's it was a total shock when it was discovered by this great genius Riemann that yeah. we're talking about, and it, it underscores how how counterintuitive infinity is. I have to admit, I love when uh, my intuition gets corrected. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I have to say, this is one thing that I've been enjoying about sort of what I'm doing my thesis on. My intuition gets corrected all the time. We thought we were going to get back to talking about sort of underrepresented groups in yeah. mathematics, and we never really got back. We to haven't. That. No, no. It was just a generic you in the classroom. Yeah. Um, let's. I, I got to talk to John about this. Okay, let's talk. So about talk this. about it. <laughs> yes. No. It's first of all, it's it's an issue. It's a it's a real issue that you look at. Let's say top math departments because we're mathematicians. Mm-hmm. And you don't see women. And you don't see African Americans when we're talking about, let's say, the American math mathematics. Certainly not population. in proportion to the representation in the population. Yes. Not even close. Not even close. And this this tells you something. And I'll say what it says to me. So first of all, I am going to sort of discard the following hypothesis as ridiculous. The hypothesis that all of the babies in this country that have, you know, innate, great innate ability for mathematics and are little genius babies <laughs> are all being born male, white, and into strong households, mm-hmm. namely st- with, you know, strong socioeconomic sure. backgrounds. And this is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Right? Of course. Uh, I think so too. And so sort of, okay, I'm being a little sort of like loose here, but – in light of that, we're sort of left with the conclusion that there's clearly something going on between when these children are being born all the way through their upbringing where somehow we have really, really brilliant, smart minds being lost and not being served. I think that this is, this is an issue, and I think it is an issue we should care about. And I do talk about it as a need for our community because I, I do want to stress that it's not just an issue – for those children, mm-hmm. it's an issue for us as well. And so that's why I'm phrasing it like this, because I think it's an issue we should care about. I, I Suddenly I'm flashing back to the old movie Stand and Deliver. I wonder if it's too too long ago for you because you're a young man still. Too, what year was <laughs> yeah, this? Yeah, okay. Well, Stand and Deliver, I don't remember what year it is, but it's a story of a, of a high school teacher named Jaime Escalante in East Los Angeles, who was, he was an aerospace engineer, if I'm remembering right, some kind of engineer. But Mr. Escalante taught students that everybody else had written off Mm -hmm. as, you know, these are kids that have no potential or troublemakers or, Mm -hmm. and he taught them um, the course you're talking about, advanced placement calculus in high school. And and there were colleagues, at least according to the movie, and I think in real life, because I know some of his students who have gone on to become professors, Mm -hmm. you know, that that Mr. Escalante is expecting too much out of these students. They can't even learn algebra. How are they going to learn BC calculus? Mm-hmm. You know, you're setting these kids up for disappointment. And he says, that's not true. The kids will rise to the level that the teacher expects. Mm-hmm. And I always found that a very, I mean, I could get choked up with that line. I yeah. think that's such a, I, I have found that to be true, that if you expect a lot, kids deliver a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, your own story seems to have yeah. borne that out. So maybe that's a, an appropriate thing for us to reflect on. Let's ex- let's ask more of each other yeah. and expect a lot out of everybody. Everybody has a lot of potential that's getting untapped. No, I, think I mean, that's, that's your point, Yeah, right? I think you know that's perfectly, 
Right. That's exactly my point. Well, let's do our own part yes. <laughs> to help with this. And, yeah. and meanwhile, you've still got all your potential left untapped here. Not totally, but you're on your way. Yes, yes, I'm, I'm on my way, and uh, I'm really, I'm really enjoying the process. So, am I hearing right? Your your PhD is not a done deal yet. You still haven't graduated. No, I still haven't graduated. So, let's look forward to that. Yes, and your upcoming postdoctoral years, and yes. hopefully see you as a colleague very soon in the professor ranks. I'll yes. te- I'll, I will teach you the secret handshake later. Okay, perfect, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Next time on The Joy of X, cosmologist Jan Levin and I wax poetic about black holes. The Joy of X is a podcast project of Quanta Magazine. We're produced by Story Mechanics. Our producers are Dana Bialik and Camille Peterson. Our music is composed by Yuri Weber and Charles Michelet. Ellen Horn is our executive producer. From Quanta, our editorial advisors are Thomas Lynn and John Rennie. Our sound engineers are Charles Michelet and at the Cornell University Broadcast Studio, Glenn Palmer and Bertrand Odom-Reed, but I know him as Bert. I'm Steve Strogatz. Thanks for listening.